Father in heaven, we thank you for the blessings of your spirit today. We pray now, Lord, as we reflect on a story from your word, you will speak to us in our time. In Jesus' name, amen. It is my belief that any great work for God that we might do begins when we are able to recognize the greatness of God. So in order for us to do a great work for God, I believe it's important for us to recognize the greatness of God. And and I think the Lord helps us in those situations by revealing his greatness. And I believe that's the case in the story I want us to look at today that's found in the story itself is, is primarily in Joshua chapter 6. But I want to start in Joshua chapter 5 because it's there that the greatness of the Lord is revealed. So let's go to Joshua chapter 5 and begin with verse 13. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. It's an amazing little story there, and not the least of which because we like to get it in our minds that God is on our side. But I think more important than the fixation as to whether we think God is on our side or the other side, the fixation that ought to be on our minds is, am I on God's side, not is God on my side? There was a problem. Joshua found himself the leader of Israel tasked with taking the people into the promised land. And it is interesting, if you spend any time reading in the book of Joshua, you repeatedly hear the phrase, be strong and very courageous, be strong and courageous. Apparently, this was a pretty intimidating role to have been placed in. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we can pretty well understand why. Because what was the name of the leader that came before Joshua? Moses. And he was not like other men, the Bible says. He spoke with God face to face. And now Moses is gone, having never gotten the people completely into the promised land. And now the responsibility has fallen to Joshua. But God in his goodness, I believe, comes to Joshua in a form he can understand, Joshua can understand, and gives him an indication that now he will be with him as he was with Moses. Because do you remember when God first called Moses to bring the people out of Egypt and take them into the land? There was something about a bush that was on fire. What did God tell him to do as he stood before the bush? Take off your shoes. And now here is Joshua, only it's not a burning bush this time. This time, It's a warrior. 
But the message is the same. You're on holy ground. Take off your shoes. The problem that Joshua faced was maybe he could get the people across this river, because it wasn't a huge river. Maybe they could figure out how to get across the river. But on the other side, the land of promise, as soon as they got there was this city of Jericho. And Jericho was going to be tough to take. But the commander of the army of the Lord showed up and told Joshua, take off your shoes. His instruction goes on, Joshua chapter 6, verse 1. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark, On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the walls of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. So the angel of the Lord gave Joshua instructions on how they were to take the city. Simple enough, right? Well, it's simple enough if you already know the story. And that's one of the problems sometimes when we read the Bible and we marvel at the lack of faith of the people. It's because we know how the story ends. But it's not so easy to be confident at the beginning of the story when you don't know the end of the story. Anybody living in a spot like that right now? Joshua was living in that spot. And the angel of the Lord has said, go back and tell the whole army this is what I want them to do. I want you to go out and I want you to walk around the city and then I want you to go back. And then the next day I want you to do it again. And again, and again, and again. It's always a challenge to be faithful when God asks us to do something, isn't it? Especially when we can't exactly see how what we're doing is going to bring about the result we want. Because how many of you think that because they walked around the city seven times, somehow they weakened the foundations of the walls by the tramping of their feet, and therefore the walls fell? Is that what we think? No. Nobody thought that. And whenever something like this happens, you know what's easy to do? I'll tell you what's easy for me to do. When somebody comes up with a crazy idea, it's very easy for me to sit on the sideline and say, yeah, yeah, you, you do that. And, and when it works, I'll join you. So maybe, maybe you go out that first day and you walk around that second day, but nothing's really happening. You don't see any difference in the walls. Nothing's going on here. This is ridiculous. So you stay home days three, four, five. Maybe you go back out day six because it's a little boring in the camp. But day seven, you're not going to be completely committed, right? You're going to kind of hang on the side. Wait till you see 
Oh yeah, if those walls go down, sure enough, yeah, you're going to run right in and tell everybody you were there. But God told him, take the whole army and march them around the city. To accomplish a great work for God, the first thing we need to do is recognize the greatness of God. Because if you don't recognize the greatness of God, sometimes the strategy he gives you is going to sound a little silly. Step one is to recognize the greatness of God. Step two is to take action. Verse six. Joshua six, verse six. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, take up the ark of the covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army, advance, march around the city with an armed guard going ahead of the ark. How many of the people do you think were pretty sure Joshua wasn't doing it right They'd had some victories in the past, sure, but now Joshua's in charge. How easy it would it have been if you were one of the people to say, yeah, I'm not sure this new guy is very smart. I mean, I know he was close with Moses, but, but uh, I'm not sure he knows what he's doing. He's going to get us all killed. Is it not in our nature to sometimes think our leaders are crazy? Is it not because sometimes they try to prove it, it seems? But haven't we kind of been trained as Americans that way? It's kind of our independence, our, our notion. Has that ever happened to us in the church? I'm not really complaining from the pastoral side, but I'm thinking more about the lay leadership of the church. You know, we choose lay leaders in the church and we ask them to do things. We choose leaders of ministry. Do we ever then turn around and talk about how, well, they're just crazy. I don't know why in the world. Verse 8. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward blowing their trumpets, and the ark of the Lord's covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the ark. All this time the trumpets were sounding. But Joshua had commanded the army, do not give a war cry, do not raise your voice, do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout, then shout. Okay, do you think we could have been that disciplined? Okay, I'll go out and march around the city, but come on, we can't even talk? It's interesting to notice, the story doesn't say they failed to do it. Apparently, they did it. Somewhere, they found the discipline to follow what Joshua was saying, to do it the way that the Lord had commanded him, to walk around the city and not talk. What does it take to have that kind of a discipline as a people? I want to suggest to you, to be that disciplined as a people, you've got to have some sort of clear vision of what you're trying to accomplish. And you've got to believe that the Lord is leading, 
And that if you will do what he's asking, then you will get to where he's asking you to go. Now, there was a clear vision in the mind of the people. We're going to go into this land of promise that the Lord is giving us. And we will get there by being faithful to what the Lord has commanded. They could follow the orders because they had a vision that they were going to occupy this land. And challenge number one of this land was Jericho. Verse 11, so he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling it once. Then the army returned to camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the ark of the Lord, blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them, and the rear guard followed the ark of the Lord while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did this for six days. Why is it when the Lord has promised to deliver that he doesn't just do it now, but he usually makes us wait? Have you ever, has the Lord ever made a promise in your life and it didn't happen now? Has anybody been in that situation? Why is it that he doesn't just do it now, he makes us wait and possibly also go through exercises and actions that aren't exactly going to make the outcome come to pass? Lord, I'm praying that you will deliver me from the financial bind I got myself into. And the Lord says, I will deliver you. What I want you to do is get up every morning, read your Bible, and pray. You're like, ah, not seeing the connection. Lord, deliver me from my illness. I will deliver you. But what I want you to do is invest yourself in loving your family. I don't see it. Has the Lord ever done something like that with you? Given you a task to do that didn't seem to be getting you closer to your goal? Lord, we need to take this city. Okay, I want you to walk around it. We pretty well know what it looks like, Lord. We've been around three days. Walk around it three more, and then walk around it seven times. Why does the Lord do that? He promises deliverance, but then there is time. Then there's process. Then there's activity. Well, could it be that that's how faith is built? Could God have taken down the walls of Jericho on day one? Did God take down the walls of Jericho on day one? Could God have healed Naaman the leper without going to the river? Could he have healed him on the second dunk? Or maybe slowly made him feel like, I'm starting to feel better. I will keep doing this. The Lord always invites us to participate in his great works. And what he asks us to do doesn't always look like what makes sense. 
But do you trust the Lord enough to do what he asks? Even if it doesn't seem like it makes sense? You know, I think one of the reasons the Lord does this is because we are so prone, after some great work is accomplished, to take all the credit to ourselves. And so the Lord creates scenarios where he does ask us to do something, and it won't come about unless we do that task. But when we're done and we look back on it, we can't make the mistake of saying, well, it happened because I was so awesome. But instead, the end, we'll look back and say, God did a great work, and I was privileged to be a part of it. But here's the thing. If you want to be a part of the victory of the Lord, you have to march out with the army. You can't stay back. So what are the steps here? Step one, recognize the greatness of God. Step two, take action. And step three, keep going until the Lord says stop. Don't give up. Joshua 6, verse 15. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, shout, For the Lord has given you the city. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed, so everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. And everyone who faithfully marched out with the army was a participant in the victory of the Lord. There's a lot of lessons we can learn from this story, and you've probably heard a lot of sermons on this story. But I want to kind of take an unexpected twist on this. I want to talk to you about our Building Boldly for Jesus campaign. It's kind of ironic, right? A story about walls falling down to talk about walls going up. But the point isn't really so much Jericho. The point I want us to reflect on today is what did it take for the army of Israel to be united, to follow God's call, everyone participating in doing what God had called them to do? What did it take? We are a very blessed congregation. I don't know if you're aware of that or not, but as I was reflecting on that notion this week of what a blessed congregation we are, I got to thinking about the history of this place. And we we talked about this a couple years ago, 51, 52 years ago, there was a congregation called the Forest Lake Church. And they needed a new sanctuary. And that gathering of people got together, pooled their talents, pooled their resources, and built for us this place where we meet every Sabbath. 
and not just us, but many manifestations of this congregation over the years leading up to this day. A couple things about those people. For one thing, there were less of them than there are of us. They had no idea in those days how many people we would be cycling through the various buildings in this place. No idea that we'd be having three services. No idea how it would go. There were less of them. And for another thing, as a group, they commanded far less resources than we do today. What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is this. In those days, most of the people who worked for the hospital went to Crest or the hospital church. And not only that, in those days, the people that worked for the hospital were on the denominational pay scale. So not only were there not that group that's a part of us that were here, the group that was did not command nearly the resource we do today. And this church in those days was kind of out of town. I've heard it described as a lot more of a blue-collar church in those days. Yet they got together and gave us this space. They had a commitment. I don't know how they did it. If we were needing to reconstruct this this space, it would be a project much bigger in expense than the project we've been talking about. So I got to reflecting on that, and and it, it came to my mind that as a group, the congregation that meets in this church right now has command of greater resources than any congregation that has ever met in this place since its founding. And I got to thinking about that a little more. And and there's no way to prove this, and I don't know how we would prove it, but I will tell you what my intuition tells me. The congregation that meets in this place right now has command of more resources than most congregations in all of Adventism. Why do I say that? Well, just in Florida Conference, this congregation returns about twice as much tithe as any other single church. So you compare that to the conference as a whole, and Florida's a pretty big conference. There may be some churches in California or some other places where there are folks in there that the Lord has blessed as He has blessed the congregation here. But I would bet you, if there was any way to figure it out, as a people, we probably are top 10 in the entire denomination in the amount of resources we as individual members have at our command. I got to think there's some responsibility that goes with that. And I would say this as well. In many ways, our lifestyles reflect the level at which the Lord has blessed us. Now, I get it. 
it's an interesting time, and there's a lot more demand on our resources than there used to be, because I got to make sure I'm paying my direct TV on time, and I got to make sure that my high-speed internet is top of the line and working. And they don't give away these cell phone plans. I don't know if you noticed that. So yeah, there's a lot more things. And, and we don't just have a family car. We tend to have a car for everybody and maybe an extra. And insurance isn't cheap either. So there's a lot of demands on us as well. Here's the question I would ask. Does the house of the Lord that we call our church home reflect the level at which the Lord has blessed us? Now I get it. On the one hand, we don't want to be pretentious. I don't think we should have a gold throne and all kinds of things like that. But has this ever happened? Have we ever been so proud of our humility that we use it as an excuse for self-indulgence? I would think, it would seem to me, that a congregation that the Lord has blessed in this way would certainly not be unwilling to have everything we need to accomplish God's purpose in our time. And I would also suggest to you that we've been making do for quite a while. I don't know if you ever get down into the children's ministry area. I was walking down there last Sabbath and Pastor Barb caught hold of me and made me step into the cradle roll room. She loves to make me step into the cradle roll room because there's no room in the cradle roll room. What's amazing about that is so many people, so many families are coming to this place so that their children can find that exposure to Jesus in this place. Are we giving them a place to do that that reflects the level at which the Lord has blessed us? I want to give you an update on our project and on our status, and I'm going to go over here to do it. If I can get there from here. Here we go. So, you know, there's really two big issues with this project. Issue number one, the monies we need up front to start the project. Issue number two, the monies we need on a monthly basis to keep the project going. So I want to show you where we're at. And I, I did this a little last week. Let's start over here with this one. Didn't want to cover up the choir, so we're over here on the side. In order to accomplish the project we've been talking about, which is a new children's ministry area, uh, which increases the space we have for children's ministry, and a new lobby space, which includes room for fellowship and bathrooms that are actually from this millennia, not from the previous one. In order to get that project done, 
The project itself is around $9 million. Now, our building committee has worked very hard to get that nailed down, and I need to tell you something else about it. Maybe you notice, but there's a lot of construction going on in Orlando. And the longer we wait to get this done, the more that price goes up and up and up. We really need to get this done now. We need to get it locked in. But in order to make our start, we've secured our loan from the Southern Union Revolving Fund, but to get there, we've got to have $3,150,000. Here's the good news. We already have over $2 million. A lot of faithful folk have stepped up and given. But you look at that and you think that 860 plus thousand gap, that's a big gap. Well, it is a pretty big gap until you start realizing we haven't all started pulling yet. I'll tell you of that number, over 800,000 of it comes from just six families in this church. Over 500 from just two. There are faithful people who are giving generously. And I'll tell you what, I don't want to let them down. So early on in this process, we took a look, knowing that we would need full participation in order for this to work out. And we took a look at different groups in the church who've been giving to church budget and giving tithe on a faithful basis. We began to talk with different ones and ask if they could make gifts and We'll talk in a second about the monthly gifts, and a lot of them have stepped up and done it. But let me tell you, even within those who have faithfully been giving the tithe and offering, it's still 50, 60% that have made one-time donations. If everybody who's already being faithful got behind this project, we'd be out the top of this in no time at all. The resource is here. The other issue of significance is the monthly we need, 57000 a month. We're at just under 40000 right now. And you look at that and you think, oh, that's, that's kind of tough. Yeah, until you see this one. This is the number of people that have pledged. About 150, 160 families. I think there's a few more of us here, isn't there? If we just got that to 400, we'd be out the top without a problem. You see, I believe that God has told us to go forward and take Jericho. But half the army isn't leaving the camp. Now this great work of the Lord is going to get done. The only question left is, are you going to be a part of the work? But I want to go farther than just that. I don't just want to talk about the building campaign. I want to remind you that I believe the same three steps is going to get this done, and not just this. Step one, recognizing the greatness of God. If God has given us this project, and it is His will that we do it, 
How can we recognize his greatness and not participate in his work? And to that end, I want to talk to you about your lay leaders in this church. Because we've talked about this project for over two years. And in each of the settings, the key leaders you have appointed over you in this church have said, this is indeed what God would have us do. We've never had a vote on this in any body, including a business meeting, that wasn't unanimously for this idea. So far, we've been able to raise our hands to say yes. But not everybody's been able to reach quite all the way to the pocket to say yes. Yet here we are, commanding more resources than any group here before. Is God great? How great? Has God blessed you? How much? What do you have in your life that you don't owe Him? Step one, recognize the greatness of God. Step two, take action. We'll talk about that again in a second, but let's go somewhere else here first. Do you return tithe? The Bible talks about tithe as a returning of 10% of your increase. I talked before, each year this church returns just under $5 million in tithe. Joyce is here so she can check my data here. That's with like 90% of the people giving tithe, right? No. 80? 60? 55, 60? We haven't even begun to do what we can do. Church budget, the things that helps keep the place going, about the same? A little worse, isn't it? A little worse. God is a great God. And we have a great place to worship Him. And He's asked of each of us a faithful tithe. And He's asked of each of us that we would give to sustain what we have according to His blessing. And he's put a project in front of us. And we are here, a congregation commanding more resource than just about any other Adventist gathering in the entire world. If things aren't getting done, it's not because God isn't blessing. But now I'm not trying to be negative because I know we're going to get it done. And I know that the Lord has made available enough to get it done. What I'm really appealing to you on is don't miss out on the victory of the Lord. Don't be sitting in the camp when the walls fall or go up, as the case may be. Get on board and be a part of the victory. There's a great big rock, and there are people pushing on it, but if everybody pushed on it, we could push that rock anywhere it needed to go. Number one, recognize the greatness of God. Step two, take action. Step three, 
keep going until the Lord says stop. This is what it means to win together. We don't want to win with just one or two people winning. We want to win this together. When Joshua led the army to Jericho, do you think 75% of them stayed back? No, they all went. I'm not even worried about the numbers, except for the one about participation. The Lord would never ask us anything, ask us to do anything He had not given us the resource to do. He hasn't asked us to build this sanctuary. He asked a different group to do that. He's asked us to create a first-rate structure where our children can learn about Jesus. I think that's a good idea. We're part of an unbroken line of faithfulness. And we need to keep the faithfulness moving. So my challenge to you today is pray to the great God and thank Him for blessing you and commit yourself to be a part of this work. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have been gracious to us and you have blessed us. Lord, I pray that we would be faithful according to the blessing, not according to a phony standard, not in an effort to appease you, but simply as an act of faithfulness to a great and mighty God. Lord, the leaders you have given us in this place have chosen this project as the project for our time. And by your grace, we will get it done. So bless us. Open our hearts. We all want to be a part of this victory. In Jesus' name, amen.